Hello, and welcome to the Lakewood Anglican Podcast. My name is Deacon Mark Hoddle, and I'm glad you have found us. We put up various content from time to time. Most of it's the sermons that are given at our weekly worship services. Uh, This episode's a little different, though, because it's from a Bible study we're doing at the moment. Uh, The Bible study we're going through is called Scripture Through the Eyes of Genesis. We're looking at the beginning of the book of Genesis, especially chapters 1 through 4, and using what we learn there to better understand all of the account that follows of our Lord's actions that are uh, related as the story unfolds in the rest of Scripture. I hope you enjoy the study and will let us know if it's helpful or if you want to learn more. You can contact us using the email office at lakewoodanglican.com or find us on the web at lakewoodanglican.com or on Facebook. All that being said, let's get started. Start that. All right, wonderful. Well, welcome. Thank you all for coming. I'm very excited to be having a chance to talk with you all about this and share with this. Um, And uh, we're going to start right at the very beginning. Basically, here, here's what I'm envisioning, and I'm sure this will grow with us as we settle into studying together. Um, I'm, my overarching goal is to try to give you new tools in how to read scripture and how to read the Bible um, and help you see overarching themes and uh, arcs. Um, In seminary, we would say uh, how it does its sense-making, like how it it does its logic forming and presentation. Um, So you can see these arcs, understand where they come from, and better understand how to fit individual accounts in scripture into the overall theme and flow of the Bible. Um, Anyone have any questions on that? Sounds great, really does. Wonderful. So uh, to start off then, I would like uh, you um, to do a little exercise as a group. We're going to imagine we have uh, someone joining us who's extremely open to learning about God and really wants to know about this Bible. They're like falling all over themselves, trying to to get what we have, so to speak. Uh, and we've just suggested to them a really good book to read, kind of like uh, your favorite novel. Hopefully you all have a favorite novel and have the joy of having a favorite novel. So I want us as a group to introduce this book to our friend who's really excited to read one of our favorite stories. Uh, And so just like any story you'd be introducing to your friend, you're going to try and give them a sense of the plot, right? Going to give them uh, an introduction or a a way of starting to engage with the story. 
you might not give every detail or you might leave some twists in the plot out so they get to enjoy the story uh, for the first time without any spoilers. But that's our goal for the next 10 minutes or so. We're going to try and introduce this book to our new best friend. So who would like to start introducing our favorite novel to our new best friend? No. All right. How did I cut you off, Karen? You no, no, okay. no, not at all. No. All right. Um, well, I would call it an epic story, if I might, since it spans a long period of time. Okay. Um, and I would say it's about a creator and his creation and their separation and the long journey back home to uh, communion with the creator and a very long journey over a couple of thousand of years to being uh, in, in peace and harmony with their creator again. Yeah. Okay. Might be a little short. I don't know how, how detailed No, that's great, Howie. Thank you. Thanks for giving us a framework to start on. Does anyone want to add anything they think our new best friend, we'll call him uh, Daniel. They think Daniel needs to know about this. I would say it's the earliest recording of humankind as they uh, began on this earth. And some of the early uh, problems that arose, which uh, we find even similar ones today. Okay, so we've got an epic story that goes from creator in his creation to separation uh, to being rejoined, and it has something to do with these really early accounts of people. Mm. What else? Another, another way I would say is that we start with the beautiful garden. Um, with peace and everybody is in harmony. And then as we go along, um, there's another middle section with the garden, but it's not so much peace and harmony. But at the end, we end with the garden and that garden is beautiful. And again, we're at peace and we're in harmony with everybody. And it's the journey that takes us through these three beautiful gardens. Hmm. Okay. Thanks, Linda. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. You know, I think if you're recommending a book, you always want to be honest and warn people ahead that uh, you may not uh, understand some of the chapters or understand why they're in the book. Because um, I think, uh, you know, if there's anybody here whose favorite book of the Bible is Leviticus, I, I would love to meet you. You did, you know. <laughs> so I think it's helpful if we're pretend telling someone about this book. There, there are some chapters, 
some chapters you'll like better than others. That reminds me a little bit of an anecdote, but I was with a non-Christian friend who was reading the Bible for the first time, and she asked me to just read to her what I was going to be reading that day, and it happened to be on like the ritual cleansing of women after their monthly cycles, and I was like, this is uncomfortable, I'm sorry, but anyways, so I do think maybe some slight warnings occasionally is a, a good good idea. Yeah. Yeah, so there's there's writing in here that's not really like any other writing you might read elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Like I think the way I I tried to frame it to start was literary cuz that's kind of my default setting. <laughs> but sure. I think it's fair to say there are multiple types of literary works contained. I mean, you have more storytelling historical accounts you have the the poetry and um and and some some of the chapters you have less linear storytelling and some and then you have some that are just law focused like the the code of conduct or wisdom teachings um so there mm -hmm. there are all those things brought together and you know at the end the epistles so you do have a wide variety of writing types that you're seeing along the way, even though they unify to tell a larger story. Yeah. And I think that's my, my main introduction that I give to people is, is just remember that everything you're reading from beginning through the middle to the end is either tying, telling forward or telling after this one event and also forward um because obviously there is that middle part where the entire old testament is pointing towards and then there's the time after where it's saying okay here's how we react to that middle part but then there is another epic ending that's going to happen yeah i want to riff on that for a moment visually i think i can pull this off see if I can share my screen. I can't share my screen. Uh, <laughs> I can share my screen, but it's going to boot everyone out, and I don't want to do that. This is important enough, though, for me to mess with. Um, so uh, you were you were talking about references, right? of reading forward and then reading backwards? Yes, I was. Yeah. Um, so one of the, the big bits about uh, this book that we have in front of us 
is that reading forwards and reading backwards. Um, and I'm going to switch my camera. There we go. This is my one way of sharing my screen. Okay. But I don't know how well you can see that. Let me check. How can you move it just like works. slightly to the left? There we go. Okay. Very good. It's pretty, isn't it? The, the data visualization nerd in me is like, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. What you're looking at is 66,000 internal references in scripture visually depicted. It's interesting how at the bottom there's like four arcs. Like there's like smaller arcs and then the larger ones. Yeah, you notice there's like, there's common arcs in here that there seems to be some hot spots that things keep coming back to. Yeah? This one's interesting, right? That, that's pretty thick. Makes you wonder which book of the Bible that is. Yeah. So uh, each one of these columns is a different book. You can spot Psalms. They're length by how many chapters? Right, so there's your psalms. Um, but that's that's what we're getting to know. We're getting to know a book that references this itself like that. And in case I need this again, I'll just put that on my computer there. Probably not the best. All right, so um, we've kind of walked through this. Uh, what didn't you hear us say? What did we leave out of our introduction to this book? Well, we didn't talk about, oh, go ahead, Elena. I don't think we've mentioned Jesus yet. <laughs> right, that's what I was gonna say. <laughs> I was alluding to that in the middle part. Yeah, I can, right. can yeah. see. I'm alluding to it. Yeah. We didn't mention God's grace. Yeah. We, we didn't also didn't mention grace. personal sin. Yeah. Well, we, we mentioned that there was problem. Yeah. Um. What else didn't we mention? Grace. Salvation. Oh. Salvation. Repentance. Yeah. What's kind of interesting, if you do take it back a little bit to the literary idea, that to a certain extent, the conflict resolution happens in the middle versus the end, kind of like Austin was saying. Like, typically, if you think of a novel, your conflict resolution usually only happens towards the very end of the book. I mean, there's usually a small amount afterwards but at least your third act, whereas not by length, but by sectioning, um, the redemption narrative happens 
maybe more of a halfway point that act two, um, the kind of the third act ends up being more what happens after the conflict is resolved to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it, it, it has more of a, and it has the ending similar to how like a Kundera novel actually would be, where they basically tell, they spoil the ending in the middle, but then you still have to figure out how the ending happened. Yeah. Oh, Catherine. You do get you do get a nice picture at the end, right? Like, it's not like it's totally spoiled. Still, uh, I don't know, get all the imagery from Revelation, which I think is pretty important. Ties that garden theme back in. Yeah, the observation of the Guntera novel similarity is uh, astute in that it's actually spoiled earlier than the middle, right? It's spoiled on page three. <laughs> God's <laughs> like, I'm gonna solve this, and and that's that's the that's the novel. the The novel is, uh, you start out in paradise. Something messes that up. God says, I'm going to restore that, and then the entire rest of the story is, how's he gonna pull it off? Um, and who is he gonna choose to pull it off with? And how is their mess up going to make the problem substantially worse with every generation such that it gets harder and harder and harder to put this all back together um and and you have the the high point in terms of this is the solution that shows up in the middle and then there's this like dash to the end while you're reading someone else's mail and you get to the end and you're like wait but that's not the end if if it's all this is beginning. true yeah that's not the end i've just reframed all of life and it's one of those stories i don't know if any of you have ever run into the book inkart um it's like Inkart, where you, you're in the middle of the story as you read along, and you realize, oh, I'm, this is actually my story, and that's what that's what scripture is. So we've done a little bit of that musing. How would we describe it? What didn't we hear ourselves say? Um, the authors of scripture, uh, human guided by divine took some time to introduce it to us as well. Uh, in fact, the first uh, three, uh, three, four chapters are very particular about framing this book for us, setting it up, and also giving us the tools to read everything that will come after it. Uh, it's once you start seeing them, you these these different frameworks and themes and tools, you can't stop seeing them. You start seeing where they show up again and again and again. Uh, and just the spread of time that it's written over uh, is uh, a delight because the more you get to know it, um, the more you just can't help wondering at the Holy Spirit and all that uh, the Holy Spirit has done through people to bring together this witness. 
So what I want us to do um, is for this study, we're going to start in Genesis 1.1. We're going to start reading. And as we march through chapters 1 through 3, we're going to pick up tools to put in our bag. Uh, we're going to pick up frameworks. We're going to pick up glasses to wear while we're reading everything else. And then we're going to keep marching on from there. And we're going to just keep coming back to 1 through 3. Because Genesis 1 through 3 is, is the scripture's training ground on how to read scripture. So if you want to practice reading scripture, hang out in 1 through 3. And then once you've done some observation and some learning and some wrestling, then go back to somewhere else in scripture and wrestle with that in light of Genesis 1 through 3. Um, because much of scripture is engaging with, developing, or riffing off of Genesis 1 through 3. Questions, comments, concerns? This is kind of a side issue, but I think it's kind of fun that if you were telling someone about this book, you would be able to say, it's written, it's translated into almost every language in the world. No matter who you are, there's a copy of this book for you. And then to make it more confusing, uh, there's slight variations of the text. So, you know, if each of us here on the screen held up our Bible, there might be an ESV and a New King James and a, you know, it, that's very rare for a book. And on that, for the purposes of this study, please do not try to conform to a standard version for us to look at. Whatever is your favorite or preferred version, grab that one. The more versions we have as we talk, the more as a group we're going to be able to tease out differences in phrasing. And that difference in phrasing in the English is going to give us lots of wonderful rabbit trails to run down together. Um, so uh, even if, if you've grabbed ESV is kind of the Protestant standard at the moment, if you've grabbed an ESV and actually like something else or are feeling adventuresome tonight and <laughs> have a different one on a shelf and you want to go grab it, please go ahead and go do that. Uh, the other thing uh, regarding that, which is helpful just starting out, uh, we talked about um, all these different languages that it's been translated into. Uh, it's, it's one of the special things about God and his work is that there's no one holy language or holy culture. We're not all trying to be exactly the same. In fact, when we get to the Tower of Babel, we're going to find out that God actually is very interested in us not all being the same. Um, and one of the problems with the Tower of the Babel was everyone was trying to be the same uniform um, 
and God disrupts that and then preserves that. If you watch Revelation carefully, he's very careful to preserve the diversity. Um, so uh, that's a wonderful aspect. It's fine for us to be um, reading scripture in English, but we also have to come with a bit of humility. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever done overseas travel, but uh, if you do overseas travel, uh, especially as Americans, for some reason Americans are are not great at this. Um, hello, Ellens. Thank you for joining us. It's good to see you. Oh, sorry for the we're late. Uh, we had trouble getting into Zoom. Oh, that's okay. Um, so when when we show up to Scripture, we're showing up to a different culture. Uh, God has used a specific culture of a specific people to record this story, and then he's mashed it up with a bunch of other cultures who just keep getting joined in and mixed together with. Uh, but this is not modern American culture. This is not Western culture. This is something that's very much foreign to us. Uh, so uh, we want to be good visitors to this foreign culture. Um, this foreign culture does not talk loudly at tables in cafes, and it doesn't wear loud colors in its clothing, uh, and it is not exaggerated in its mannerisms or randomly walking up to people and talking to them in English, uh, expecting them to know English, of course, no matter where you are in the world. This culture is going to be extremely foreign to us. And so uh, when we come to it, um, I want us to assume that we don't understand what's going on and are probably going to need to take a little bit of time to muse on it and um, recognize when we're bringing Western American frameworks to it. Questions or comments on that? Wonderful. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to read Genesis chapter 1, and then we're just kind of going to wander through um, the chapter, and we're going to make observations, uh, and we're going to see how Scripture itself introduces uh, introduces itself to us. So in chapter 1, uh, I have 30 verses, and I'm actually, yeah, 30 verses. So if I can get three people each to read 10 verses, um, someone will start, they'll read 10 verses, and whoever wants to pick up can keep going, uh, and we'll get through the chapter that way. Would anyone like to kick us off? I'll kick you off. Great, thanks, Linda. In the beginning, God created the heaven. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it and God divided the light from the darkness. 
And God called the light day and the darkness night. Evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above it. And God called it heaven and evening and morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters gather together onto one place and let the dry land appear so God called the dry land earth and the gathering together the waters called the seas and God saw it was all good. Who will pick up for us? All right. Thanks, Austin. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be light in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. We will finish. I can read. Great, thanks. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems, according to the kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures with moving, which that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God said the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, 
and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of all the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of the, of, uh, sorry, the breath of life in it, I give every great plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. I'm going to give us all a moment here. Um, if you need to use the restroom, you can use the restroom. Uh, and I want you to, if you're looking at uh, Genesis 1, just look for things that seem odd to you, or interesting, or repetitive, or confusing. And we're going to talk about those when we come back. So we'll take five minutes for that, uh, and we'll continue after that. What a pretty dog. What kind is he? <laughs> he's a he's a mutt. <laughs> he's a German Shepherd and Red Bone Coonhound. I have a beagle sitting behind me, so as oh. long as
our boy usually gets his training about this time. So he's being a little bit of, oh, oh, he heard the word. He heard the word. So he's being needy. <laughs> What's your dog's name? Sadie, what's yours? Pirate. How old is he? Um, we adopted him and we have him three years. They estimated he was about two when we got him. So he's around five years old. He's four. He's a pretty, he's a pretty good boy. Is yours a rescue? Yeah. There was a farmer that had all these dogs that he and my we drove up and he said, anyone is yours. And she picked me. <laughs> all my dogs have been rescued. Uh -oh. <laughs> all right, we're going to start back in. Um, like I said before, uh, we're coming at this assuming that we might not understand everything. We're trying to see this through the eyes of a different culture, uh, the Hebrew culture, um, and not just the Hebrew culture, but a very, very old uh, era of that at this point. Um, so please feel free to make any observation, any of the stuff you already know, point it out. That's great. Um, but right now, let's just stick with observations. So uh, when we start reading scripture, it's good to start by looking at facts. So we're just observing facts. And that helps us to not jump straight to application, which uh, we tend to do. We read something and we say, oh, that must mean this to me or that to that other person. Uh, and if we get there too quickly, we can lose context and we can lose the conversation in the text itself. And we can import things into the text that aren't actually there. So we're starting with the facts, uh, just the facts, just the facts. Um, and we'll move from there. So. Tell me, reading Genesis 1, what is interesting, what is strange, what is intriguing, or weird, or distressing, or any of that? It took six days, but each day built upon the day before. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. So we've got this day thing going on, right? Um, broken into six days, and they seem to be related somehow. What else? Thing I noticed to get back to your comment on uh, biblical translations, I think most of what was read wasn't ESV or uh, except the version I have. So I thought it was interesting uh, the differences with sky, air, and heaven. My translation mm. has heavens, which you know you you kind of naturally associate with like heaven, but um, to hear that as sky and air as well was a little bit interesting with those those differences and as an English speaker, the difference in context there. Yeah, the, um, the word that is being translated there, that some of you have heaven, some of you have sky, some of you have air, uh, is a very general term. 
Um, it is sky in kind of the same way we use ocean uh, as a general term, like the oceans, seven seas, or uh, we actually preserve this use of sky in English. Um, it's less common, but you'll see it sometimes. Uh, there's a aircraft um, or a, a transportation carrier whose tagline is fly the friendly skies. Um, and that, that use in English, it's skies as a general term meaning that, that stuff up there, that's the word you're reading. And in Hebrew, that word means that's stuff up there. Um, so some of your translations say heavens, some of them say sky. Uh, it's getting a sense of that stuff up there. So if you're if you're importing into Genesis one some sort of heavenly throne uh, or specific living space of something or someone. That's not actually in the text. The text is talking about as we stand on the ground, that's stuff up there. Thanks, Holly. And and the earth was without form on day one. So it's above some datum, some plane, but not necessarily the earth's surface. Um, because it, it says it's formless. That's why I say that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The that earth was formless in a desolate place. Um, the those words there, formless in a des desolate emptiness. The uh, Hebrew there is just fun to say. Uh, it's tohu vavohu. You can all say that with me. Tohu vavohu. Um, yeah. Tohu vavohu. Uh, which is just fun. Um, that also reminds me of um, the way that the sun and the moon aren't created until day four, but you have light on day one. Yeah. You know, that you have void without, you have an earth, but it's without form yep. and then you have light without a the source that we think of well yeah let's um be let's pay some attention to this light uh, i'll share with you this tohu vabohu um the concept that's being presented here is a untamed, unlivable, unfilled something. Uh, so translating it into English, uh, the one I like best is actually from a Jewish scholar. His name is Everett Fox, and he trans translates tohu vavohu as wild and waste. Um, so it's wild, it's, it's uncontrolled, it's untamed and waste, it's empty, there's nothing there, nothing can live there, it's not a habitable space. So that, that's how we start out. We, we begin in the heavens and the earth, 
are created and the earth is this wild and waste place and darkness was over the surface of it. Now, Elena, you paid attention to light. So let's all pay attention to light here. Tell me about the light. It's interesting that the he creates the light and the light is good. So I was sort of focusing initially on like, okay, on day one, you have light and dark, but it's the light that he creates, the light that he calls good. Yeah. So we know that God creates the light and that it's good, what else do we know about it? Well, the light kind of marks the beginning of the day sequence, because before that, there's not a night and day to have, based on the definition he gives there of, like, light became day and darkness became night, so then it's the first day versus whatever came before it. I don't know if we consider that part of the first day or not. Um, <laughs> But the day didn't exist, so does it really matter? That's very existential. <laughs> yeah, so, right. If we look at this, did God create the light and call it photon? No, he called it day. So what's God actually creating here? Time, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's creating time. He's creating a demarcation in time, and then he, it, that kicks off this whole day cycle thing. Yeah. It's interesting that, you know, he talks about creating light first, and then he creates darkness to separate light. Does but he create when... darkness? Well, I was going to say it's interesting to go with or that. God creates the light, and he sees that it's good, and then it gets separated. That the, the light is good, like, while it's still mixed with the darkness? That's interesting. Is, where, was that where you were going to, Dad? Well, no, where I was going is, he talks about light and darkness. You know, he separates the two. Yeah. But then it says at the last... At the end of the um, verse there, he says that there was evening, which would tell me that darkness is coming. Mm -hmm. And there was morning, the first day, which was light coming. And it seemed to be backwards, how I would think they would talk about it. Isn't that yeah. based off of the, the that's like the Hebrew, like yeah, because the next they, day they, starts they, at sundown they, the day before. So like at five o'clock today is really tomorrow, starting tomorrow, um, with the Hebrew, yeah, with the Hebrews, the Jewish, and that's the way yeah. they do their, um, worship. At five o'clock, it's like a demarcation. Uh, and you didn't have calendars or clocks or anything back then, but as soon as the sun started to go down, that's the day that ended, 
and a new day would begin, and that's when you would do worship. So that, that's how they kept the connection was by the day and the night. Yeah, and just to follow up with like the, you were mentioning the evening and then there was morning. I like that it, in the text it points out evening first, so it's going from darkness to light instead of from light to darkness, which kind of almost, yeah. it, 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 it's a symbol for what basically the entire narrative is going to be of this the entire scripture and that little nugget right there. Yeah. So um, let, let's say we're the, the neighbor of these um, Hebrew people who are sharing their favorite story with us. And we're like, huh, okay, so you start your time with night and then you go to day. So the beginning of your day starts when it gets dark and then it gets light again. When does my day begin? It starts when it gets light. So how do I start my day? How do we start our day? It's the first thing you do when you have start your day. The light comes up. The light comes up. Light coming yeah, in the window. It wakes you up and you begin doing things. And and what generally do we as a group do? Morning, Morning prayer. prayer. I get okay. coffee. Yeah. <laughs> get coffee. Oh, you get coffee, huh? Okay. <laughs> Some of us have to start our engines, right? And and why are we starting our engines? What do we need to start our engines for? Morning prayer. <laughs> Thank you. We got it in there. <laughs> Are you getting at like sleep being like a brief death? No, I'm like <laughs> when I start my day, we regenerate ourselves. We charge our. <laughs> I put on clothes. I go to the bathroom. Drink a cup yeah. of coffee. Yeah, um, and you got to get to work, right? Go to work, yeah. Like you got to wake up because you got to go to work. Yeah. Because you you need money, so you can go to bed in a house and yeah. eat food and all that stuff. Right? So well, when yeah, you get up, who said regeneration? I did. So it um in Tish something more. I forget how to say her name. Tish Warren. Uh, yeah, Tish Warren, she wrote in Liturgy of the Ordinary, she always talks about when you wake up as it's kind of like the process of what baptism is. So she she associates waking up in the morning in that first, like, going kind of in that groggy state, going into clarity as a way to remember our baptism every day. But I kind of see that as the day starting, it's going from that kind of regenerative state. Martin Luther wrote, uh, when you get up in the morning and wash your face, remember this is a sign of your baptism, the water. So uh, we're wearing our Babylon hats at the moment, right? Because we're reading someone else's favorite book. In our Babylon hats, we get up and we have to get going because we have to get to work. But if you're... Hebrew, how do you start your day? 
the very first thing you do in your prayer. day. You pray, and then what do you do? Dinner. And then? Go to sleep. You go to sleep. You foolish Babylonians. You start your day and you go to work. We Hebrews, we start our day. We're going to rest. We're going to go to sleep. And then once we've rested, once we've spent time with God, and once we've been fed by him, and once we've been restored by him, then we'll go work. But you want to work all day and, and then try and, and get your rest at the end of it. Foolish Babylonians. <laughs> okay, so that's importing a lot in the text. We've been doing a lot of importing. Is any of that in this text? The emphasis on evening to morning. This is an emphasis on evening to morning, yeah. That that um, has to have some significance. Hmm. It um, might have some significance. We should pay attention to that, right? Yes. We've noticed that there's this evening-morning thing. He never says morning and evening. He always says evening and morning first. So it's like you go from darkness into light, mm -hmm. uh, the light of Christ. I'm reading more into it now. But yes, you're, you're reading to, a lot into it there. But, but we always go towards the light, which is positive. That's fine. But as we read this text, at this moment, if it isn't in the text, we can't bring it into the text. Well, it's in now, my brain, so. <laughs> yeah, see, this is hard. It's hard to stop and go back to the beginning and really read the text for what the text is and not bring stuff in. And eventually, we're going to get to later texts. Say so we might run across a psalm um, that says, uh, unless the watchman or unless God builds the city, those who build it labor in vain, right? And we get to, uh, it is foolish for you to rise up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for God gives to his beloved rest. We're going to hit stuff like that, and then we're going to come back to chapter one and go, oh, night comes first, rest comes first must be significant. But at the moment, we're only in chapter one. So um, let's keep on this day, this day pattern that we've noticed, and run with that, okay? So day one, God seems to be creating time, and he does that by differentiating light from darkness, separating them. He calls the light day, and he calls the darkness night, evening and morning. So what happens next? Makes land. Makes land. Or, sorry, in expanse, I guess, is the way my translation uh -huh. puts it. Does anyone have something other than expanse? I also have the alternate canopy. Canopy. Expanse, canopy. No one has anything firm, else? Firm, firmament. Permanent. That's another popular English translation. Mm -hmm. 
The Hebrew here is rakia. And rakia is a dome, like if you think of a classic round domed shield that a warrior would carry, or maybe the dome of a building, like uh, St. Paul's Basilica. That dome is a rakia. So knowing that, knowing now what an expanse is, in your own words, what happens on day two? God splits the water and puts some domes in the middle. That's a, kind of an interesting way to think of it, though. Like, I don't think of a continent as a dome. I mean, I guess technically, I don't know. I'm not biologically minded, or uh, but. I guess dome seems like a weird, a weird way to describe it. A weird way to describe what? I guess what I took to, to mean land, like a continent, or I kind of, I guess, visually, since he's saying he's separating waters from waters, unless they're putting in expanses in the midst of the waters, my kind of thought is that previous to this, we're just kind of a, a ball of water. And he is shaping domes, separating those waters with domes of some nature. But it is kind of a, an odd, maybe with the way I understand domes, to think of land that way. Well, uh, in Hebrew, land is autumn. Uh, so that's dirt or ground, earth, autumn. And in verse 6 through 8, autumn does not show up. So what, what are the domes then? Does anyone else have thoughts? What's this rakia? What's this dome? I see it as a um, big expanse that has water vapor in it, but it's very distributed. You know, it's kind of uh, there. And then he takes and starts to gather that water to separate it. Okay. Because I I don't I don't see as he's talking about Earth at all here. It's it's not like dividing the water on Earth from the water on Earth or the water in the sky from the water on Earth. It's just the water in creation being separated. Wherever right. it is. That's a good point because the next section says the dry land appeared. So it is just more separating the waters from each other, but not necessarily well, with anything. And this is just me putting a lens on. Obviously, we know what is above the sky, beyond the blue void now. But back then, they just saw the sky as blue. Is it possible they thought that was water? And that there was some dome that was protecting the water from falling on them. Yeah. And when it rains, that's what this is. <laughs> yeah. So so God starts out and he's got this this uh, tohu vavohu, this wild and waste thing, and he creates day and night, and then he separates water and he puts some of the water up there in that place up there, the sky, and he leaves some of the water down here. And the way he keeps that water up there is by putting a rakia, by putting a dome over top of the water that's up down here. 
And so by establishing his rakia, he keeps some of the water up there and some of the water down here. Is he establishing like the physical space where he was doing time on day one and now he's sort of being structured? Oh, an interesting observation. So day one seems to be time. Day two, we're starting to get a separation of space somehow. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's see if that pattern continues. What happens on day three? All right, now land shows up. Now land shows up, yeah. Real this time. Yep, real dry land. Honest to goodness dry land. What do you call it? What do you have there? And God called the dry land. I have earth. You have earth? Mm -hmm. Mine says, uh, God called the dry ground land. So right now, this this verse uh, nine and ten, they're talking about the water underneath that dome only. Because uh, he said, let the yes. water under the sky be gathered. Yep, exactly. Mm -hmm. Must be a English disconnect. Oh no. Okay. So it the earth is here. Um and God called the dry land earth, which is in Hebrew Eretz in that verse in verse ten we'll meet Adam a little bit later. Um, yeah, so we've got the stuff up there, that wet stuff up there that's held up by the rakia, the dome, and that wet stuff down here that's divided. And you get some land and some water. And what does he do then? He brings the plants. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what I'm seeing as a theme, just without even thinking about what's coming next, and just what we've mentioned is, we're going from way a vast expanse to a very specific thing. He's getting more and more specific as the days go on. Mm -hmm. 
Or yeah. He seems to be bringing what? What would you call this? What's he bringing about in? It seems like creation? he's inviting the expanse into different entities. Some he's sort of bringing structure from the chaos. Yeah, yeah, Linda. Structure from the chaos. That's a really good way of putting it. Structure, order. There was chaos. There was Tohu Vavohu. Yeah, that was Tohu Vavohu. And when God interacts with it, structure happens. And life. Oh, I'm sorry. There was waste. There's. Life. Yeah, life's part of the structure. Yeah. I'm sorry. I forgot to back up. Um, In the beginning, what does your what does your scripture say? In the beginning, who created the heavens and the earth? God. God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. Well, um, let me show you something. That's the word. I can get it to focus. Elohim. Elohim. So uh, I'm going to need you to take off your Western glasses for a moment uh, because you've been talking about specific God, I think, right? You've been using the word God. Who have you been talking about? Elohim, creator. The creator. But what? which creator? I mean, Marduk. I'm Babylonian. My creator is Marduk. Hey, you keep Marduk. I'll have... So what God are you talking about? The God of Abraham and Isaac. Ah, the God of Abraham, Isaac. But Elohim is not is it so it means more than one. So it means the whole deity. But Elohim, so we're this is part of Genesis's training ground, right? Elohim, you can take a couple different ways. You can take Elohim and say it's a proper name, and Elohim means the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's one way you can do it. You have a problem, though, because there are other things called Elohim in Scripture. So to deal with that, I can either say that there must be more than one God and come become pantheistic, uh, that's one solution. Um, I can say someone changed the text here, and this actually isn't Elohim in these other places. They were misusing God's name. 
So I'm going to translate that differently. I'm not going to translate that as God. I'm going to translate it as something else. Kings, rulers, those are some English translations of Elohim in, in some versions of the Bible. Um, or I can take a step back and say, okay, wait a second. Maybe Elohim doesn't mean what I think it meant. Maybe Elohim isn't actually a name. And if it's not a name, what does it end up being if it gets used for other things? And you come to the conclusion, uh, it must be a description or a class. It ends up being a class. So, so far, all of you have been thinking about Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Genesis hasn't introduced you to Yahweh yet. You've only run into Elohim. And in its most basic translation, Elohim means spiritual being. So if I can start us over again a little bit. Can it either in the mean, beginning? Sorry, Mark, can it either mean like a singular spiritual being or plur or plural? Is it ambiguous? Uh yeah, that starts to get into how singulars and plurals work in Hebrew. Um Elohim, there's there's shortened versions of Elohim. Um El is a shortening of Elohim. If you've run into any of the descriptors of God that God uses for himself or that people in scripture use for himself, you've got El Shaddai. You've probably heard that one. El Shaddai, El Shaddai. Right? So El there is the shortened word of Elohim. Um, sometimes it's used singular. Sometimes it's used plural. Sometimes it's used as a plural, but the words around it are singular, in this case, uh, and sometimes used as a singular and the words around it are singular. Sometimes it's used as plural and the words around it as, are as plural. Um, so it can be either, and just because it's singular or just because it's plural it doesn't necessarily mean it's talking about a singular thing or a plural thing. You have to look at it in context because the way Hebrew works is you take your noun and you join it with your verb and the ending of your verb tells you how to treat your noun. So you've got a plural noun but a singular verb in this case. So then how is the um, how is created it, it, since that's the verb that's used in that sentence, what is that referring to? Uh, that's taking Elohim. So it's saying Elohim created, the spiritual being created. The, that first bit is Barashit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. That's how we translate it. In the beginning, Elohim created. It doesn't say God. It doesn't say God. Mm -mm. Now, do we all have bad translations? No, we don't. We don't have bad translations. Um, our translators have actually done us a favor because we're going to get to Genesis chapter 2, 
And as we start into Genesis chapter 2, we're going to hit verse 7, which says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, if you're reading this from the beginning, if this is truly brand new to you, you hit this and you say, ah, the Adonai Elohim. Ooh, let me turn back to page one and start again. In the beginning, the Elohim, who I know now is the Adonai Elohim, the Lord God, created the heavens and the earth. Okay. So it's not a bad translation. The translators have actually done some work for you, and they know that's there in the Hebrew, and they're trying to help bring it out in the English, which is very helpful if you're only reading in the English. But as you will soon find out in this Bible study, we're going to spend a lot of time in other languages. So I'm going to start trying to peel some of this back for you, uh, give you a little bit deeper look into this. I know you want to stick to facts and not speculation, but do you have any speculation about why <laughs> they start with Elohim and not Adonai Elohim? I my question like, is kind of related to that. Is it because uh, in the beginning, he, he, couldn't, he was not lord over a, a human being yet or over animals, but then in chapter 2, he's already created things that are under his control? where the word Lord would come in there? Or am I off on that? Um, I, I wouldn't want to go there, Austin, because to go there sets a precedent of defining God based on us, um, which is we actually do a fair amount of that. I don't often realize it, but reflexively we do a fair amount of that. That becomes really, really important, especially when you get to talking about the emotions of God. Because uh, when we get to talking about God's emotions, like God gets angry. It's in here. It's great in the Hebrew. It says his nose burned long, and that means he got angry. Um, or his nose burned hot. He got angry. Um, and uh, when we get to that, we're going to need to wrestle with some of these emotions that are attached to God. And it's really important to give him the emotion, but not to define him by our human experience. It will be important to say, if if this is the emotion God has, and that is the true emotion, how does that help us understand what we experience, rather than using our experience to define what he experiences? That, that might seem a little philosophically kind of nitty-gritty, but it becomes really, really important because, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time being angry and patient at the same time. Yeah. But God doesn't seem to have a hard time with that. In fact, if you run into the times when he is angry here in Scripture, and it says he gets angry, a lot of times he, 
he gets angry and then he cuts someone a break or gives them a little slack or makes it easier for him. Like Moses when Yeah, it's grace. When Moses doesn't want to go to Pharaoh, it says in scripture, God gets angry at him. And God's response to him in anger is he gives him Aaron as a partner. So it's important. So I don't think I would say he isn't described as Lord there because there isn't any human yet or isn't any animal. Um, Clearly the author of Genesis 1 is in conversation with the surrounding nations. Okay. Now, we don't often think about this because we have this concept of the surrounding nations being the bad guys, right? The Philistines. They're the bad guys. The Canaanites. Not so good. The Malachites. Yeah. Um, But if you look at the family trees, the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Malachites and the Jebusites are our cousins. So very intentionally, there's a lot going on in Genesis 1 that if we go back and read some of the creation accounts of those neighboring peoples, the author of Genesis knows about those. Clearly, they've read them. They're familiar with them. And even as it's recounting creation, it's having a conversation with these other creation stories and doing some correcting. Right? So, for example, um, we're going to get to, uh, as we read earlier, uh, the creatures. In 21, it says God created the giant sea creatures. Okay? Those show up later in scripture. uh, Leviathan. You know that word from Mm -hmm. Psalms, right? So the Leviathan is this giant sea creature. And that giant sea creature, if I'm Babylonian, my chief god, Marduk, he fights this giant sea creature, this Leviathan. And he cuts the Leviathan in half. Well, no, he tears it in half. First, he shoots a giant windstorm down its throat to open its throat. Then he shoots an arrow down it. It's not really clear why the arrow doesn't seem to do anything. Then he tears the Leviathan in half. And from this, Marduk creates Earth. Okay. So if I'm your Babylonian neighbor and I'm reading page one of your favorite novel and it's in the beginning, the spiritual being created the heavens and the earth. Marduk, Marduk, Marduk. And the earth was out form and void. Darkness was over faith of deep. Marduk, Marduk, right? And then we get to 21, and the spiritual being created the great sea creatures. Wait, what? No, no, no. The great sea creature was the other deity he had to fight. Don't you know? The world was created in bloodshed and battle. And the author of Genesis is saying, no, the giant sea creature is actually part of creation. It's not another god. It's part of creation. 
So I think to some degree it's left as at the beginning, the spiritual being as as kind of a hook to set in to its neighbors. That's my opinion. There are a lot of people who are far smarter than me that may disagree and probably justifiably so based on a lot better research and, and understanding of the setting. But if I'm speculating, my speculation is it's an intentionary literary tactic to start you off on getting to know this grand story, this epic story it's telling. Yeah? Okay. It's 8.30. I want to respect the fact that it's 8.30 and I said we'd stop at 8.30. If you want to keep going, I'm here. If you need to go, please don't stand on ceremony. As you know, everything's going to be recorded, so if you want to catch up later and you need to get your sleep, it'll be there. So, um, who do I have a contingent of, yeah, let's keep going? Yeah. Okay. I've got at we're least gonna, a couple people. Stop here. Yep. We don't know how to do that cool message Holly did, like, Goodbye, everybody, in text or whatever. You say. <laughs> no, good. Yeah. And I don't either. So I'm uh, lucky I'm on this. Yeah. Hopefully, for those of you who are leaving, hopefully I've set my hook and it's been interesting and informative. Yes, and we'll very keep much so. Yep. Walking through it together. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. See you all next week. All right. Have a good night. Okay, good night. Bye, bye everybody. Bye. Bye. Alrighty, so we got to day three, right? We were talking about day three. Uh, any other observations about day three? Sort of expect him to be done when he creates the dry land, but then he goes and does another thing. Yeah. The... It's kind of interesting that if if day one is creating time and day two starts establishing space and day three refines that space. Is it a refining of space or is it something else? Why are these plants here? He's adding more structure. Say again? He's adding more structure. Yeah, he's definitely adding more structure. Well, it's also the first maybe living element in plants. Yeah. Oh, something else you need to know here on day three. This is important. We're going to run into this a lot. Got another Hebrew word for you to learn. And the word is eights. You can say that with me. Eights. Like the tra crazy eights. Eights. And eights is wood. Okay. <clears throat> now in English, we've got a lot of words for wood, right? If I say firewood, 
that means something different than if I say lumber, which means something different than if I say tree or shrub. Yeah, all, all of those are different types of wood in different conditions. Some of it's live, some of it's not. Some of it, like a shrub, we would never call a tree. Like, that's a totally different type of wood. That's a shrub, it's different than a tree. In Hebrew, all of those are universally covered by eights. So a shrub is eights, a tree is eights, that pile of firewood is eights, that lumber is eights, right? So in English, they're going to do translating to help you understand, and they're translating based on context. But it's going to be helpful for you to know every time you run into one of those different words in English that is wood, to say, okay, there's one word, it's eights. And if eights is showing up here, it's going to be significant. This is one of these common theme patterns that runs from the beginning of scripture. It shows up on page one, and it runs all the way to the end of scripture. Eights, trees, are really, really important. Okay. Let's go to day four. What happens on day four? This is where he starts the timeline, the day from the night, uh, seasons, um, years. This is where it all starts to form is on day four. Yeah, there's something different that God's doing. Creating time. Well, we already created time, right? That happened day one, but you've picked up on something. Refining it. Yeah, there's something going on also with time here, and on, we're, we're on day four. Hmm. Which kind of time, time is it, though? Is it time time or Phanos time? How can, how can he create years when it's one day? But he's thought he could do it. Well, uh, does, it, does he say he's creating years? He's creating, uh, he's creating the sun and the moon so that they can mark the years. Okay. Yeah, it says, let there be lights in the rakia, in the dome. Put lights in the dome of the heavens, of the skies, of the stuff up there, to separate the day from the night. And they shall serve as signs, and for seasons, and for days, and years. But that's the key word, signs, that that he's making these demarcations in night from dark so that you could start to tell one day from the next, one year from the next, or one month from the next. So this is where he starts to, to even make it even finer, uh, more yeah. detailed as he's going on, mm -hmm. more exact. Yeah, exactly, Linda. And and the words here, you don't know this because we haven't gotten here, but I'm going to give you a sneak peek. The words that they use here for signs and seasons 
this is the exact same word that we're going to run into later in Torah when it talks about the holy festivals, the seasons. It's the same word. So he puts these lights in the sky to mark time and to remind you when it's time to have your feast days, when it's festival time. You watch the lights in the skies to know when it's festival time. Okay. Any other observations in there? I was thinking about uh, in Revelation that uh, there won't be any sun, but there will be light. Which, yeah. you think of Revelation or the second, the new heavens and the new earth being sort of a restoration of Eden, but um, it's interesting that in, in the original Eden, there there is a sun. Anyway, that's... Because Revelation distinguishes that there won't be a transition. It's always going to be light. Well... So this is a really interesting observation. I've mused on this. Um, what do you think? Why do you think Revelation says we won't need a sun anymore? That Christ will be our light. Is it about time again? I mean, obviously, well, yeah. Because we're going to experience time differently? I don't know. Um, I think, and I've only just begun musing on this, um, I think what's going on there is it's engaging with Genesis 1, and Genesis 1 is talking about um, governance uh, or the sun and the moon. It, look closely there. It says... He made lights, okay, and they do a number of different things. They serve as signs, seasons, they mark days and years. They serve as lights to give light, okay? And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day. We call that sun. doesn't say it here, but that's our word for it. The lesser light to govern the night. We call that the moon. He made the stars also. Okay. This is this is one of those times where we look at this and we're like, hmm, that's interesting. The fact that the sun and the moon govern. It's an authority term. The next time that shows up is with man. It's like a guide for us. It, it's the sun and, and the moon rain in the sky. They have they have authority to rain and govern. It's the really moon is powerful. Yeah, but the moon does cause a lot of. So once we get to the new heaven and the new earth, um, 
We won't need that anymore. We won't need to be governed because we're with we're the new heavens now. We're the, the new Garden of Eden remade. We won't need to be, we won't have to worry about, is it winter, is it summer? Is it time to go to Shabbat? Is it time to go to divine worship? We won't need those anymore. Well, I, I think it's even yeah. deeper than that. Because of the term they use, I think what's going on here, it's, it's taken a ruling term. It's taken a term that are used for beings, not parts of creation. Like elsewhere, scripture says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Or um, sometimes creation, uh, the heavens and the earth are called as witnesses to bear witness to things. It's like you're making a covenant. You're signing a legal document. And the witnesses who witness the legal document are heaven and earth. So that happens with heaven and earth. It happens with creation. But nowhere else in all of scripture is a part of creation that isn't man said to govern. Uh, I don't think we're talking about a ball of hydrogen in a big rock hanging in the sky. Uh -oh. I think there's more to it than that. That's what I'll give you now. We'll run into this again later. But as for Revelation, when it says, you won't need the sun anymore, I will be your light. There's something going on with the relationship between these things that govern in the sky and people that govern everywhere else. Something's going to happen in that relationship. That's what I think is going on in Revelation. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. Day, that ends day four. Day five, what goes on on day five? Yes. <laughs> you fill the seas and the sky. Yeah. Creatures. Okay, let's practice another scripture reading tool. Day five, I'm talking about waters and earth again. Have I run into waters and earth anywhere before? Waters and heaven. Yeah. When did no, I, I run you into said these? water and earth. I did. I we've run into waters in heaven. Thank that you. was with the rakia, right? We separated the stuff up there from the stuff down here. And we've have we dealt with the stuff up there, stuff in the rakia again? And he formed it. Go back to day four. Reread day four. When he when he did the sun and the moon, or the day from the night, there'd be signs for us to. Yeah. Wow. Fourteen. Then God said, "Let there be lights in the rakia, in the expanse." So we've dealt with the rakia. 
Now we're on another day and I'm talking about water and land. Where did I last interact with water and land? Isn't that in two? It's not in day two. Isn't it the, but isn't it waters and the skies rather than land? That's day two is separating the waters from the waters and by a rakia. Five, it's filling the waters and skies with birds. Yeah, you've got a slight hitch in the step here. You're talking about filling the land and the water on day five. Great. And you also get winged birds. So you've kind of got things in the air, which is different than the rakia. The rakia isn't the atmosphere. The rakia is above the atmosphere as we would think of it, right? So you've got the air, the rakia above that, the rakia, the, the expanse, that's where the lights hang out. And you've got the water and land and this space between water, land, and rakia. So he's filling the water, the land, and the space between that stuff, the stuff down here, and the rakia up there. Day three. Day three, yeah. Do you see the pattern? What happened on day one? Felt like dark. What happened on day four? He seasons though. You get the lights. You Things that create time. light and mark time. What happened on day two? The water's What happens on day four? Oh, sorry, I messed that up. Day five. One compliment. One, one is creating time. Four is the things that mark time. Two is the rakia. That complements five. Five. Yeah, okay, yeah, five. So you get the birds and the rakia, and you also fill the water. So you're right. Sorry, Elena. No, oh, okay, sorry. I, I, well, it was also interesting because it, for me, it's to let the birds increase on the earth. But I think that that doesn't that doesn't mean land. Um, on the earth. Hang on a second. At the end of uh, verse twenty-two. Yeah, let me look in Hebrew. It's like. He does this in this verse, and then he does something else, but then he expands on the first one. One verse complements the other one. 
but not simultaneous. One and three, two and four, three and five. Yeah, yeah, you got it, Linda. You see it. We've been dancing around this. So there's this pairing. You you get a realm established and then the realm is filled. So the realm established on day one gets filled on day four. The realm established on day two gets filled on day five. The realm five. established on day three, three gets filled in six. Six. And then he rests. Yeah. And then he rests. Like he okay. establishes it, lets it rest for for a day, starts to work on something else, and then goes back and fills it up. Just so so like when you do pottery. You know, you form it, you work the wheel, and you let it rest the day before you go that it's formed and it's solid. Because if yeah. you go the next day, it could be mushy. So this is what he's doing. He's building this <laughs> day one and going, letting it sit, and then he goes back and says, okay, this is how I want it. This is good. Now let's put this together. Yeah. So he builds on each of them. I think it's important for us to ask ourselves the question, and uh, I'm just going to ask it, and we'll talk about it more next time. Does the author of Genesis 1 seem to be worried about the scientific creation of everything? No, I think he is. We, as modern, Western, especially Protestant Christians, we've spent a lot of time fighting about creationism and chapter one of scripture. And we fought with people who aren't Christians about this. Now, part of it is because we have a dedication to the word of God being true. And that's important. Um, and part of it is because there is a extremely long-standing um, connection between good science and good faith. Being part of science is saying there must be some sort of order to this. And what have we been studying the whole night? We've been studying about this spiritual being, this Lord God, the Adonai Elohim, and he's all about order. Like, he really likes order. Uh, and that's driven many Christian scientists down through the ages to seek order and to understand what's going on because our God is a God of order. But if we're going to fight with our Babylonian neighbor who believes in Marduk over whether or not uh, the first page of our scripture matches with science, I think we've kind of missed the point of the first page of our scripture. Like, Moses didn't write this so we could have a tool to bludgeon our neighbors into some sort of understanding of how to interact with science. I don't think he cared about that. That wasn't his point. In fact, if we make that his point, when we get to chapter two, we hit our first major, major snag because we're going to go through another creation account and it's not going to look anything like this. And our Babylonian neighbor is going to say, 
you all are reading some man-made thing that got written up and it isn't coherent and it's got multiple stories about different things and look you just, uh, i only have to read the first two pages of your story to know your story's messed up maybe you've got this whole day thing going on on one and on page two everything happens in a single day and in a different order right so something if if this is our training ground if genesis chapter one is our training ground um one thing we need to understand about hebrew meditation literature because that's what this is this is hebrew meditation literature is they are really concerned with you understanding the significance of things and they're more than happy to rearrange events so you will understand the significance of the events because it's most important that you understand the significance of events so we're going to have to check our linear history writing understanding of uh, events as Westerners at the door if we're going to read this and read it for all it's worth. Having said that, I also want to give you an affirmation that this is the author of Genesis 1, who traditionally we hold to be Moses. Um, it's recounting history. And one of the ways we know that it's recounting history is because there's something in this text called a Vav consecutive. Wonderful name. Vav consecutive. Pull it out at your next party. A Vav consecutive is what we translate as and. So before when we were learning tohu, vavohu, tohu is wild, vohu is waste, va is and. That's the Vav consecutive. And if you look at this in the Hebrew, there is no punctuation mark anywhere on this page. It just says, and, and you'll notice, look in the English, it's in there. You'll start seeing this now. How many times does the word and show up in chapter one of Genesis? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. That's only two verses. That's a lot of ands. When you're reading Hebrew writing, and you run into the Vav consecutive, they use the Vav consecutive in historical accounts. That's when it gets used. If you run into poetry, like in the Psalms, the Vav consecutive disappears. And use the Vav consecutive there because that's bad Hebrew writing. We're writing poetry, not historical account. Stop using that Vav consecutive. But Genesis 1 1, it's all over the place. So he's the author of Hebrew is writing like a Hebrew. He's writing to help you understand the significance of things, but he's writing it as a historical account of the significance of things. And that's something that. When you first encounter that idea, at least for me, that was, that was kind of uncomfortable. I spent a lot of time like wrestling with that. And, like, How does that change the way I think about science and about this book and about what I have believed and what I'm supposed to believe? 
that's that's a little bit different. So that was a big data dump. Now I want to give you a chance to ask questions, process out loud, you know, whatnot. And this is where we're going to end tonight. We'll do some processing together, and then we'll wrap up. Even with that and continuously through the the account of Genesis one, obviously we can argue is it literal six day, not literal six day. Does the and allude to one over the other from what you've wrestled with? Or is that still kind of up to it's not really important? what it means, we still know what the order is. I don't think the author cares. Okay. I don't think he cares about whether it's a literal six day or not. Um, I was I was taught that when you see the and word, pay attention to what comes after. It's important. They want it to stand out. And if a word appears more than three times, that's something of importance too. Mm -hmm. that, like I said, they don't have any exclamation marks, commas, uh, all those punctuations. So that's how they separated or made things more important is if you see, and this is important, it just, they have no way of marking. Like we use our exclamations or italics, that, that's their way of, of, of doing it. Pay attention to it coming afterwards because it's important. So that whole mm -hmm. scripture part is well, in, yeah. In so end, with all the ands, is that the the point is is it's just trying to reiterate that God is the creator. Yeah. Is that what the and is trying to point to? Is that yeah. the position? Well, the the and is a a literary tool. Um, it's signposts and it establishes flow of what you're reading. So for us, if we're reading a historical account in English, there are things that we're going to expect to see in that historical account as someone reading a Western account in English. Uh, we're going to see a progression of thought that's usually linear. It won't be uncommon for the author to reference time markations to help us stay in that progression of thought and understand how things relate to each other. And even when we, we mix that up, and sometimes we do that artistically, right? You might read a story where it intentionally jumps in time. Sometimes it might even hide the fact that it's jumping in time. When you go back and reread it, you start seeing clues that we just couldn't get away with, even when we were trying to hide that we were jumping in time. That just naturally fell into historical account. So the vav consecutive is one of those markers in Hebrew writing. It's You see it in historical account. Um, so as as far as does the and couple with the word day, which elsewhere in scripture is a day, a 24-hour period, 
does that combine together to let us say, yes, these are six literal days? I don't think that's the point of using and. Uh, I don't think the author is trying to combine those two to give us that message. Part of the reason why I say that is if you carefully pay attention to this morning evening thing, you see it shows up six times and then doesn't show up the seventh time. Right? So the seventh day in the Genesis 1 account didn't end. It's the eternal day. And on that day, God rested. And God rested doesn't mean he sat down on his easy chair and put his feet up and, you know, got his bowl of popcorn and cashed out for 24 hours. The word rested, it, it, the, the image uh, you should have in your mind is God went to his throne, his place of ruling, and he settled in to enjoy and to exercise his reign. It's not putting your feet up. It's, it's active. Resting is an active thing. You're enjoying what's there, and you're exercising your reign over it. That's what God is doing in the eternal seventh day. So when he says, enter my rest, that we see show up in the Gospels, right? I think he's referencing this eternal seventh day of like, if, if all this is working out well, I, God, sat down and exercised my reign and enjoyed what was created. And you, humans, I wanted you to come and exercise my reign with me. That's, that's why you're image bearers. We'll talk about that more next time. I wanted you to come into this rest. I wanted you to do this rest with me. Um, and it's an eternal rest. It never ends. So if, if we start getting all caught up in a literal 24-hour day, when we get to day seven, that doesn't end and then gets kind of referenced and used other places in scripture with this inherent understanding of the eternal enjoyment and reign of God that he wants us to be part of. As far as my Hebrew author who's trying to help me understand the significance of Adonai Elohim creating, I don't think he cares about whether it's a 24-hour day. Make sense? So you're saying is, hypothetically, if you... If you believe it's that's the timeline that modern scientists have given, or the timeline that six day creationists argue, as long as you you can adhere to those timelines, or not even adhere to those timelines, you can understand those timelines. But if reading Genesis one, as long as you understand the significance that God is the creator, those timelines are null and void, and it doesn't matter which one you believe. I think you can have faithful Christians who believe in evolution and faithful Christians who believe in a literal six-day creation. And both of them can be perfectly faithful Christians. And I think the author of Genesis, Moses, would kind of sit there and listen to them talk and chuckle 
<laughs> take his head and be like, okay, guys, read to me verse one again. What's the point of this? Read me verse one, please. In the beginning, God created. And oh, by the way, I know how to write Hebrew. In fact, I'm really good at writing this in Hebrew. If you'll pay close attention to this page one that I wrote, I paid close enough attention that there are specific numbers of words and syllables in specific lines. Like, I know how to write. And did you notice that first sentence in Hebrew, Bereshit bara Elohim? That's terrible grammar, people. I'm a Hebrew. I know not to begin my sentences with prepositions. And I began my sentence with a preposition, the, in. In the beginning, God created. That's terrible Hebrew. And it's intentional terrible Hebrew. It's terrible Hebrew because the author is saying, hmm. you know how elegant the rest of this stuff is, and I'm going to make the beginning sound like clunky Appalachian. Because I want you to understand that in the beginning, Elohim created. Is that not cool? This stuff is exciting stuff. This stuff is really neat as you get to know it. Any other questions? I, I, I'm kind of jumping ahead. So I, I missed the Sunday that you... Uh, you, you preached on Jonah, but you mentioned mm -hmm. that Jonah is it's meant as a story. It, it, is it written in a similar co like language context as Genesis 1? Yeah, so I, what I said is Jonah is satire. Yes. Which, as an English speaker, you hear satire is a made-up story. Mm -hmm. Uh what I meant, and fortunately Caleb clued me into this, and I amended how I said it for the second service to get rid of that misunderstanding, is it is satirical in nature because <laughs> you've got this guy. He's the prophet of the Lord God. Like, he knows Adonai Elohim. He doesn't just know Adonai Elohim. He knows Yahweh, mm -hmm. right? And for all his knowing Yahweh, he wants his neighbors, who are his enemies, burned to a crisp. Like, he wants them dead. He does not want to help them. He likes the repentance and the forgiveness that he gets as an Israelite. But those people over there, they can burn in hell. And the king of this enemy, Nineveh, yeah, well, not only does he repent and his subjects repent, his cows put on sackcloth and repent. The pagan cows know enough to repent in the face of Yahweh when this prophet, the voice of the Lord, he doesn't know enough to repent. And it goes all throughout Jonah. It's comparing Jonah and his disposition to all these pagans you run into. And everywhere you run into these pagans, the pagans are much better worshippers than of Yahweh than Jonah is. So it's satirical in nature in that it is 
in its language pointing out the extremes of behavior to bring about the deeper meaning. I happen to think Jonah is a historical figure. I don't think it's just a made-up story. Some people, some scholars do think it's a made-up story and Jonah isn't actually a historical figure. I think there's enough evidence both in the text and in other related documents we can say Jonah is historical. Well, and, and references later that Christ actually makes too. Yeah, the sign of Jonah. Yeah, I will see you folks next week. All right. You have a good night, Linda. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Um, did, that, did that answer the question you were asking, Austin? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, was, is, is Jonah a story like Genesis 1? Yeah. yeah. Um, is, there similar, is the language that you mentioned that's used in that Hebrew um, context in uh, Genesis 1 the same as some of the stuff that's mentioned in Genesis or in Jonah. Uh, the Jonah is certainly interacting with Genesis one, mm -hmm. uh, especially in the storm bit, mm -hmm. because Jonah gets on the boat and they're heading out, and he tells them that the we kind of learn about it after the fact, but he gets on the boat and he tells that there's probably some sort of conversation. Hey Jonah, you know we're going to Tarshish. Incidentally, Tarshish, really, right? You know anyone else from Tarshish? Apostle Paul of Tarshish. Yep. So the prophet Jonah gets on the boat to run to Tarshish. Do you think it's an accident that God chooses Paul of Tarshish? to go to the Gentiles. Now, this is where we get to, is this a literary action? Are we just writing a good story? Mm -hmm. Or is the Holy Spirit actually in command of all this stuff and picked Paul, who happened to grow up in Tarshish, where hundreds of years earlier, a rebellious prophet ran to? I'm going to put my money on the ladder. So... When he, when he gets on the ship, he tells them, hey, I'm running from my god, and they're like, cool, get on board. And then things start going south, and they find him in the bottom of the boat asleep, right? And they wake him up, and they're like, pray to your gods. What are you doing, fool? Get up and pray to your gods. And that doesn't work. So they cast lots. Like, it's you. You're the problem child here on this boat. What did you do? Why are you running from your god? Who is your god? And he says, oh, I serve the Lord God. And they're like, he made the sea. What are you, are you crazy? You got in a boat and went out on the sea? You tell us that he made the sea. You're insane, right? That's the reaction of him. And it's clearly engaging with the creation account. Like, this is the God who made the sea. And you chose to run from him on the sea? the chaos, the location of chaos. You ran from him over the location of chaos. They're crazy. And that's definitely there in Jonah. You're still muted. Nope, you're unmuted. Something's not working with your microphone. 
might be your headphones. Yes, probably is. Yeah. Yes, we can hear you now. Good. Um, um, I have a quick thing about another quick thing about Revelation, and then I should probably go. Um, I was just reading it, and there's some I don't remember what verse it is, but it talks about that there isn't any sea in the new creation. Yeah. Also, clearly engaging with Genesis one. Is that because sea is chaos? Yeah, all throughout scripture, chaos, um, darkness, all of that gets taken back and confined into the sea. So, like when the disciples are on the lake uh, and they see Jesus walking on the water and they freak out because they think it's a ghost, or the Leviathan, remember, shows up in Genesis 1, it shows up in later. Where does the Leviathan, the chaos monster, where does it live? lives in the sea. Um, you get other things like Jesus coming across the sea and running into the demoniac there on the edge of the water and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's... Uh, I don't think that bit of revelation, especially since it's apocalyptic literature, which means revealing it doesn't mean end of the world as we think about it in English. Apocalyptic, apocalypsis uh, in Greek means revealing, opening up, exposing, making known. Um, because it's apocalyptic literature, when it's talking about there will be no more sea, it's uploading all the stuff about sea that comes everywhere before it. And we're assured that chaos and the agents of chaos all gets done away with, disappears. Thanks again for joining us. We hope this has been a helpful and encouraging time hanging out with myself and some of the other members of our congregation who were walking through this portion of Genesis. You know, we believe that the story of the Lord's activity throughout time to care for, to forgive, and to renew his creation, and especially people, his image bearers, has practical wisdom for our moment in history. And we hope you've gotten to know Jesus a little bit better through this time that you've spent with us. And we hope you join us again for our future episodes and continue learning and growing with us. God be with you.